Hello, hello, and welcome again to a Beatles podcast, which we call Things We Said Today. This is a weekly show in which we talk about anything that has to do with the Beatles. It could be about their past, the present, sometimes even the future, any aspect of their careers, their music, you name it, group, solo. We cover it all here on this show. I'm Ken Michaels, and I'm one of the three co-hosts for Things We Said Today. Hopefully you know me from my other Beatles radio program, a syndicated show called Every Little Thing. And I'm also being joined by my two other co-hosts. First of all, the man who writes for Billboard.com, for Variety, uh, also uh, Goldmine, Access, that's AXS.com. And for many years, gave us Beatle news on a daily basis, still does actually, for Beatles Examiner. He's also the author of uh, meet a monkey, Davy Jones, and that's Steve Marinucci. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ken. Hello, everyone. And also, as our other co-host, we have someone who for many years worked in the classical department at the New York Times writing articles for them. He also writes for Beatle Fan, and he's a freelance writer. And um, he is the author of the book, The Beatles from the Cavern to the Rooftop, and that's Alan Cozen. Hi, Alan. Hello, Ken, and hello, everyone. On today's show, we're going to be talking about George Harrison's All Things Must Pass album. And uh, obviously, we can talk about that album any time, like any Beatles or solo Beatle albums. It does happen to be around the anniversary, the 47th anniversary of its release. But before we do that, we have a few news items to get to. First of all, it was just announced, I believe, today that two of Ringo Starr's albums, his classic album Ringo from 1973, and his follow-up to that, Goodnight Vienna, are both coming out on 180-gram vinyl in January. So that's good news for those of you who are vinyl enthusiasts and who uh, collect vinyl and prefer vinyl and want to hear an improved sound, possibly. It's been a long time since uh, Ringo's catalog, well... It hasn't been remastered, but all of Ringo's albums have come out on CD. But uh, it's nice to know that these albums will be coming out on vinyl in January. You guys want to talk about that? Steve, how about you? No, I mean, it, it, I, the only thing I could say was it's good that these two are coming out. I mean, if you had to pick two, those would be the two. Okay, Alan? Um, not really. I mean, it's nice to have a choice of format and, um, you know, 180 gram vinyl is pretty good. So, you know, I, I, I probably will pick those up actually. There'll always be those fans who will prefer the vinyl over the CD anyway. Yeah. You know, so, uh, I gotta say vinyl is, it's a better experience. I mean, especially if that's what you grew up with, it's, you know, it's 12 by 12. You can read the stuff on the covers. <laughs> you can, I know. You know, and it's, I mean, and, and the thing about 180 gram vinyl, the, the vinyl that they're making now, as opposed to the vinyl that was being made in the years just leading up to CD, um, which now turns out to have been so long ago that nobody remembers it. Um, you know, those last few years of vinyl, uh, you know, I was getting promos in the mail every day. I mean, these are brand new, fresh copies, and they always had clicks and noise mm -hmm. and everything. Mm. I, the things I do now on 180-gram vinyl, I mean, they really take care with it. And, you know, these, you know, Pepper sounded great on vinyl. I thought, I mean, if you go back, 
to when we talked about it. I, I, I thought the vinyl sounded a little bit better than the CD. Um, and some of this is illusory, you know. I mean, they, they always used to say back in the days when they used to, um, you know, spend lots of time in space um, pondering the differences – there was a theory that um, it was actually because of certain vinyl noise that we were hearing that made it appear warmer to us than the CD sounds. And I mean, who knows? It doesn't matter why it appears warmer. If it sounds warmer, it sounds warmer, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's good that they're bringing them out. I, I, I don't have real strong feelings about it, um, but... It's kind of nice to have as many formats as you can. Sure. Absolutely. I'll be curious to find out, and I certainly hope that w when uh, the Ringo album comes out, the one from 73, if it has the exact same packaging with that really wonderful booklet of all the drawings that Klaus Vorman did yeah. for that album, you know, that was a real, that, that, that's a real prize right mm -hmm. there. I love his artwork. And he had something for every song. In there, not to mention the fact that he designed the the front album cover too. Right. I have the press release in front of me. It does not mention that. Hmm. Does not mention it. Does that doesn't mean it won't? It won't. You know, it won't. But it doesn't mention it specifically here. I'm looking through. Yeah, I'm looking through. All, all it basically just gives is the history of the album. Let me write our. Our friends at uh, Universal and see if I can find out uh, what the deal. See if that's going to happen. Yeah, so, um, I know when when the CD came out, it had the drawings, but of course those are miniaturized size, <laughs> right? For a CD booklet, but um, be nice to have it in the and once again in uh, the vinyl version. Okay, I'll see if we can get an answer by the end of the the uh, broadcast. Okay. Also, more news about Ringo. You were just telling me about this, Steve, that he's being nominated for Best Song for something called... Well, it's, best pop, it's best pop Song. Okay. For, uh, there's there's several categories. Uh, um, but it, it, this is the Round Glass Music Awards. The award ceremony will be held January 26th in Times Square. And according to the website, the Round Glass Music Awards were founded to bring together a large international community of musicians who create socially responsible music for wellness, environmental consciousness, and peace. And the song that got nominated uh, is the Now the Time Has Come uh, song that um, Ringo did for the International Day of Peace. Right. And there's so, a video you can check out on YouTube mm -hmm. that Ringo is in. Colin Hay is supposed to be in it, Richard Page. So it's nice to see that Ringo's being nominated for this. Yep, I agree. Also, um, we only briefly talked about this in our last show. Um, the fact that in Paul's tour, his current tour in Australia, he's been doing Mull of Kintyre apparently every single show. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, a comment about that, Steve? Yeah, I think we ought to start an international movement to get him to do it here. <laughs> I don't know. I think you're taking it a little too far, but, you know, I love the song. There's so many songs in his catalog that he's never done live before that I'd love to hear him do. But I don't know if I, I would single that one out. I mean, it was it became the biggest hit in the U.K. up to that point in 1977. But I think the reason why he does this song in different areas of the world is whether or not it was a hit there. 
Right. And if you and, check, but, you know, it was a number one hit in Australia. But it, it was it's a much loved song everywhere. So I I don't know. I think it would be fun. I think it'd be fun to do it here. Is this but, a matter nice. of, of of peak at an old um, Capitol Records executive who said that it wouldn't be a big hit here and that he should focus on girl school or something? I mean, it, it, was there something to do with that? Is is this and is, is I, he just sort of holding a grudge about that? Well, I don't I don't know what the what the initial thinking about that was. It's probably probably is what it was. But, but we'll never uh, know unless somebody asks him that question and he answers it. Yeah. Alan, you never asked him that question? No, I, I <laughs> didn't, but um yeah, Wasn't that know, a top priority? <laughs> um not really. I mean, I like Paul Kintyre, but it, it I think it didn't occur to me to ask when I was <laughs> Okay. He probably just thinks that it wasn't a hit here, therefore people here probably don't want to hear it or probably don't know it. It's probably it's probably something like that. But given how known his catalog is, I mean, yeah, really. there are so, uh, there are very few songs that he would do that people don't know. So you and, know, Paul Paul is strange that way. There, there are a few interviews that he's given where he talks about I'll Get You as a song. And then he has to sing it to the person who is interviewing him like we don't know it. Mm-hmm. But it was a B-side. It was the B-side that She Loves You. And maybe in his mind he thinks if it's a B-side, it's obscure, even if it's Beatles. Well, so who knows how Paul thinks. <laughs> I think, I think, but I think Beatles B-sides are different than solo B-sides. I think there are... They're, the solo B-sides are a little more obscure than the B, than the Beatles B-sides. And yeah, but even if Paul has to go out of his way to sing the song as if we don't know it, I'm just saying in his mind he probably thinks that it might be considered obscure because it's a B-side, whether it's Beatles or solo. That's possible. I don't know. That's, that's possible, it's just, but it's hard to think of that song and the you know the whole the sound of the song and to imagine that not, uh, a lot of people would not know what it is but you'd be surprised that many people who are young fans who go to see paul mccartney don't know a lot of his catalog you know especially the solo catalog and um i mean when i saw paul recently i saw people getting up while he did in spite of all the danger you know and you would think because of the history of that song because it has the beatle connection there and uh you know it being the first song they recorded together and all that even with paul announcing it that way some people got up because they didn't know it. Hmm. So that's why I say on this show that Paul shouldn't be affected by when people get up and leave. It doesn't mean they don't they don't like the song. It just means they don't know it. You know, there's a difference between liking and familiarity. So um, I, I'm not saying that I know for a fact that this is why Paul doesn't do Mullet Kintyre in the United States. But you'd have to ask him that question. Well, maybe one of us will someday. Okay. Anyway. All right. All right. And I just want to very briefly mention that uh, over this past weekend, I attended a John Lennon tribute concert, which was amazing. It was done by a tribute band called Wondrous Stories that has been on Long Island for a, a long time. They're known for being a Yes cover band, the tribute band, and also a Beatles tribute band. And they did uh, a tribute to John with a lot of his music, quite a lot of John's solo music. And they also, because it was the 50th anniversary of Magical Mystery Tour, they played the entire Ma- Magical Mystery Tour album. 
And this is just a fantastic group of musicians. They're kind of a revolving cast of musicians because it's never exactly the same when you see them. But they're all just really great players. And they recreate the Beatles music and the solo music coming very close to the record. Not, not being exact, but uh, you know they pull it off so well. And when you do songs that you don't normally hear bands play as a tribute, like for example, this band did Mother. And uh, the lead singer on that, the keyboard player, Tommy Williams, who plays a variety of instruments, but his voice was phenomenal doing the Lennon stuff and the screaming on a song like that. You know, a lot of stuff, Give Me Some Truth, was done by my friend Ed Ryan, who's been uh, a musician his whole life. And he used to co-host my radio program with me when I first started out. He did Give Me Some Truth. He did a fantastic version of that. You know, there's some songs, I'm Losing You. Songs you don't normally hear, in addition to the hits that were done extremely well by this band. And then you also had special guests there like Denny Lane and Steve Holly, and they did uh, some McCartney songs. Ed Ryan sang lead to Let Me Roll It, and this was like the thrill of a lifetime for him. You know, I've been friends with Ed for a long time, and he's just the ultimate Beatle fan that also knows all the solo stuff and plays it live. And here he is, he's got Denny Lane on one side. Steve Holly drumming behind him, Mark Hudson on stage doing background vocals on Let Me Roll It. You got to imagine he must have been like in seventh heaven on stage. <laughs> it was a very surreal moment when you're a fan and then you're surrounded by the people that you've admired all these years and you're on stage with them. It's incredible. Mark Hudson was there. He did pretty much the same thing that he does at the Fest for Beatle fans. He did a Lennon medley that was great. You know, Denny Lane did Time to Hide, which was phenomenal as well as Go Now, and, um, you know, some many magical moments in that show. But I really, uh, for all the years that this band has been around Wonder Stories, and I lived most of my life on Long Island, and I never got to see them. They've been around a long time. This is my first time ever seeing them. And for the last six or seven years, they've been doing a tribute to George Harrison, which is the concert for Bangladesh Revisited, where they play, I think it's everything, probably not the Indian music, but everything from that concert on stage. And I'm going to make sure I see the next performance of that, which is going to be in March. This was at The Space, a club called The Space in uh, Westbury, Long Island. But if you live on Long Island and you love the Beatles, you got to see this band when they perform called Wondrous Stories. Okay. Anyway, so those are my thoughts there. Anybody else have something to add? No. Nope. Okay. So let's get into our talk about All Things Must Pass. As we all know, this was a very amazing moment in the career of George Harrison, in the solo careers of the Beatles. The album came out the very end of November of 1970. This followed two albums from George, Wonderwall Music, which was incidental music for a film called Wonderwall, all composed by George, and then an experimental album called Electronic Sound, all done on uh, Synthesizer, which was new for the time. But this was the very first pop album for George Harrison. And so much has been said about it because this was George finally being recognized as being a great talent. Not that he wasn't in the Beatles, but he was always kind of held back because of all the years that John and Paul wrote most of the material. And we all know George wrote a lot of great material in the Beatles, but he was always limited to his two songs per album. Here he was with a double album plus... Another album called Apple Jam, where he's 
doing instrumental jams with the highest caliber of rock musicians. You got rock royalty throughout this entire album. <laughs> and, um, you know, so many great songs throughout All Things Must Pass. I'm going to save my comments till I, after I hear from you guys and what you think about um, All Things Must Pass, which, uh, as we speak, is celebrating close to its 47th anniversary. We'll start with uh, you, Alan. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of these songs on All Things Must Pass were sort of run through during the Let It Be sessions. And, you know, the Beatles, the other Beatles, didn't, um, were, seemed unable to sort of muster up enough um, interest to really finish them. But, you know, there are a lot of um, run throughs of All Things Must Pass, Hear Me, Lord you know, some of the others. And, uh, you know, it must have been very frustrating for him sort of building up this huge cache of songs that weren't getting done. And, um, you know, having their own record company kind of made the whole solo album thing within the confines of the group possible. I mean, it's, it's well, it's true that by the time All Things Must Pass came out, they had broken up. I think the idea was that they should be able to do whatever projects they wanted and have them come out on Apple or Zapple and then do group things too. Um, it's it's kind of a pity that it sort of didn't really work out that way. But, um, you know, uh, this, this I think, was probably the last album until Cloud Nine, about which everyone was unanimous. You know, I, I, I don't know anybody who thinks All Things Must Pass is not a great album. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas you can get arguments about all the solo albums in between, and then I think with Cloud Nine, I think pretty much everyone sort of got behind that too, and the Wilburys. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's extremely strong. I mean, song for song... You know, if you just sort of look at the song list on the album, um, there's so much great stuff, and it covers a lot of different subjects. I mean, Apple Scruffs, for instance, you know, a little tribute mm -hmm. to the girls hanging out outside Abbey Road Studios. Some, you know, basic love songs, I mean, Behind That Locked Door, and um, there are some great rockers like Let It Down and Wawa. But you know we know that his his main concern at the time was this his you know krishna conscious thing and you know my sweet lord and uh you know there is an art of dying and some of those other things that deal with hindu concepts are you know pretty sort of powerfully represented here and um you know and i have to say that i mean just on a a, a sort of a personal level um like in 1990, when my father was dying, or a couple of years before that, I, I actually pulled out All Things Must Pass and listened to it, um, not because I thought it was going to, you know, get me through it or anything like that, but it kind of did, you know? I mean, um, you know, All Things Must Pass, the title song, um, mm -hmm. and The Art of Dying, things like that. And, and actually, it got me to revisit the Bhagavad Gita, because at the time George was doing this album, he was talking a lot about the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, there's this one scene in the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, actually, 
part of it is a, a lot of it is really just a discussion between um, Krishna and Arjuna, who is an Indian prince who is about to start uh, was about to go through a huge battle where everybody on both sides kind of knew each other. It was like a you know a sort of interclan kind of familial thing. And Krishna has volunteered to be Arjuna's chariot driver. And Arjuna is saying, basically, you know, I, I don't really know if I want to do this. And Krishna's saying, you know, sa- Krishna is saying, you have to. It's your duty to do it. And then he goes through some amazing stuff. Like he says, you know, I've been born many times and I remember them all. But you've also been born many times. It's just that you don't remember them and I do. You know, and it. And I don't know that the the whole philosophy of that really. You know, at the time, if you know you have a dying parent or something like that, you know, it's it's very, very helpful. And uh, you know, so there's there's a lot to this album. I I, I feel very close to this album because it's um, there's it's great music, but it also gets you thinking about a whole lot of stuff. Gets you doing, you know, extra reading. The, to deal with, you know, in a way with what George is thinking while he's making this, and that turns out to be enlightening in different ways. So, I mean, that's just that's my general overview of All Things Must Pass. Yeah, well, there are a lot of songs that George wrote that could be interpreted a number of ways, mm-hmm. whether it's sometimes a love song for a woman or a song about God. Right. And also a song like All Things Must Pass, and and the many spiritual songs that George wrote can get you through tough times. It could be very soothing. You could interpret it to, you know, to helping you go through whatever struggles you're going through at that time Mm -hmm. and learning about, you know, Eastern philosophy, as George would often say, you know, he, he really didn't think of death as being any different than life. You know, it's like, uh, you know, actually I'm thinking more of John's line. It's getting out of one car and getting into another, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, but, do, but don't you think very, he sort of got that from George in a way? Probably. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Mm. Steve, how about you? Well, in listening to this album um, over this week, I was really struck by a couple of things. Number one, I was uh, remembering back to where the original vinyl version came out in the box um, and – you know how cool that was and but i was also listening to the advances that were so you know obvious from all things must pass to what he had done with the beatles and it was it still is mind blowing that this is the guy that wrote don't bother me and here he is doing you know some of these great songs you know um beware of darkness my sweet lord of course isn't it a pity? Um, what is life if not for you? Behind that locked door, which is one of my, which is one of my favorites. But the other thing too is, I made a point to listen to, and I didn't get through all of them, some of the outtakes from the sessions that have been floating around, and to hear some of those things, and some of the songs that did not make the album, mm-hmm. um, was quite an interesting experience but it also brought to que- to the question of whether or not i mean we know the songs are great but you know i w- you wonder if 
maybe had he had he still if he had still was still around now, whether or not he would have redone the, did done what they did with um, step with um, double, double fantasy, fantasy and stripped and stripped all the production off and put the songs out you know just the way they were because the stripped down versions are gorgeous, mm-hmm. you know, and it's. I mean, we've heard a couple of them in in those outtakes that uh, that Danny Harrison put out a couple of years ago, but there's so many more, and it would be wonderful if they could do a whole alternate. I'm, I'm I know I'm sure the bootleggers have done it, but it'd be wonderful if they did a whole alternate version of this album. Um, right. But but that brings into question, you know, what do you guys think of the of the Phil Spector production now? Um, I love it. Do you really? I yes, I do. You know, I realize that there seems to be a backlash, and it's been going on for quite a number of years where Phil Spector's concerned, that his music was, you know, overproduced. And for so many years, you know, he was called this genius. You got a, the wall of sound of Phil Spector. You, well, you listen I'm, to those records. No, I'm, not, I'm trying to make a point here. Those records worked on that level back then, and... I think for these particular songs in George's career, I think they work extremely well on All Things Must Pass. I think when you're dealing with very spiritual stuff, and I got to admit that when, you, when the album came out, you had that poster of George, mm-hmm. and you saw him in this hallway, and behind him was this stained glass window. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of a cathedral or, you know, or a church or something. And when I think about that, I'm thinking, if this music was recorded in a cathedral and you've got all this sound being filled out with high ceilings and everything you'd have this very full sound and i think that when you're dealing with certain songs like my sweet lord there's so many of them there uh waiting on you all hear me lord where this very full sound whether it's whether you want to call it echo whether it's all the instrumentation uh, that was added layer upon layer. It really works for those songs. I wouldn't apply that kind of production to say something lighter from George, like Crackerbox Palace. But if it's something that's very spiritual, like this album, and also say Living in the Material World, which had Try Some Buy Some on it, which was co-produced by Phil Spector, it came from this period anyway. Some of those songs, without Phil Spector being on them have a Phil Spector feel. And many of the songs on Living in the Material World were extremely spiritual and personal, like The Day the World Gets Round and uh, The Light That Has Lighted the World, Who Can See It. Those songs, this type of arrangement works really well. You know, so I love the sound that Phil Spector did on this. I know it it's more fashionable in this day and age. People want a leaner sound. They don't want what they consider to be overproduction. But I think if something works the way it's presented, it's not overproduced. Mm-hmm. I think these songs were great for its time. And at the same time, I also happen to feel that when you're dealing with material that is strong, the songs are the most important thing. And that doesn't mean that the production is not important, but The quality of the songs, the material always has to come first. When you're dealing with strong material, sometimes when it's stripped down to just a demo form or just, you know, the leanest of production, guitars, drums, maybe some piano, 
you see the beauty in these songs even more. You realize how strong the songs are by themselves without the production, without the heavy production. So, you know, I love listening to the, the demos and the, the less produced versions, the earlier versions, the ones on early takes. I love hearing that for, this, for the same reason. You know, they're great by themselves without having, you know, all the production of Phil Spector. And yet it's great with the Phil Spector production, too. Well, and that's I, just something that I've noticed, not just with George, but with a lot of music. Beatles music, when you hear just the demos, you love them. There's a certain charm to them because you know they're great songs to begin with. And it's also the thrill of hearing a different version from the one that you've heard for so many years. It's exciting to hear that. So if you're so used to hearing all things must pass the way it was on on uh, the album with Phil Spector producing it, and then you've got all the demos and the early versions... You know, after so many years of hearing it one way, it's thrilling to hear it this other way. And because the songs are that strong and that powerful by themselves, that's why they stand like that. That's how I feel. Well, what what's interesting is that George, on the remastered CD, said that he, he, there's a sentence that says, all these years later, I would like to liberate some of the songs from the big production that seemed mm. appropriate at the time, but now seems a bit more, a bit over the top with the reverb in the wall of sound. Of course, it, it, listening to that CD, however, I didn't hear a whole lot of changes um, from, you know, what was done originally. Well, he didn't. Uh, he, he, he didn't. He was just saying that he would like to, in a way. He, he, mm -hmm. he wasn't redoing it. I mean, there wasn't anything that... He was saying what he wishes he could do, not right. Not what, he, and, what he's doing. Right, and I want to make clear that I mean I'm a big Phil Spector fan. I love, you know, I love the Wall of Sound. Um, I love the, you know, I love the Ronettes. I love the Crystals. I have on my iPhone. I have the stereo version of the of the Phil Spector Christmas album, and I love that to death. But I thought, you know, I, it's interesting to hear these George Harrison songs as they were recorded without the reverb and, you know, to, to think it would be, it would be wonderful to have these maybe without that production, you know, just so that their beauty shines through. But you know, uh, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not saying take it off and get rid of it, but uh, I'm just saying, uh, yeah, here's Alan, the thing. Go ahead. It, you know, it would have to be George taking it off and getting oh, rid absolutely. of it. And, and so absolutely. that's not going to happen now. But oh. the thing is that, you know, I love the demos too, and I love the light versions. And I really actually do think these days, I, I agree with George. I, I actually think that um, when you play the album top to bottom, some of the production really gets to be almost oppressive, you know? Mm -hmm. I grew up with the album. I love the album. I love it the way it is, but I understand what he's saying. It's just some of it just is too humongous. And it mm. would have been really interesting if at the time he remastered All Things Must Pass, he said, okay, you know, those things that we have on the bootleg, I mean, those are demos. They're, they're, they're not meant to be, you right. know, the performances we hear, but the performances on the album are what we're meant to hear. I would have been really interested if he had 
gone to the masters and said, okay, let's take the horns off. Let's take this off. So you still have a finished vocal. You still have finished guitar lines and stuff like that. But some of the weightiness is sort of pulled mm-hmm. off. That would have been really <laughs> interesting. And, and I suppose, you know, if Danny did it, it might be interesting too. But somehow you kind of want the actual artist involved right. in a, in a right. thing like that, you know. Um, some of those, some of those bootleg tracks are pretty close, though. You have to admit they don't have at least a lot of the ones that I've heard are not don't have demo quality. They don't have a real rough quality to them. Some of them do, but not all of them. Yeah, you you agree with that? Yeah, basically. But I was listening. For instance, I I, I did listen to the demos this afternoon and the uh, you know the the thing with the Phil Spector jam and and all of that. And, you know, for instance, his version of Wawa, I mean, he does it with a Wawa pedal, obviously, and it's it's kind of nice. But there's an energy on the finished track Mm -hmm. that, you know, that version doesn't have, but it also has all of the noise of the wall of sound. And the thing about the wall of sound is that, you know, it's one thing, I mean... (laughs) I don't know how to say this without it being probably offensive to someone because I love the Ronettes. I love the Crystals. I love those records. But basically what you've got is a bunch of, you know, more or less high school girls from New Jersey who go into a studio and you've got Phil Spector making it into a monster record. George Harrison is like in a different caliber as a musician. And Mm -hmm. obviously he liked what Phil Spector did at the time. I mean, he even said it in the quote Steve read. It seemed appropriate at the time, but, you know, not necessarily forever. I mean, the Ronettes records, you, you can't imagine them being lighter than they are. I mean, those are the records. That's what the Wall of Sound is for. Um, and I just, I think it's a little too much on this. I mean, it's it's the record we know and love. That's fine, but... Part of me really does want to hear a slightly more stripped down version, you know, with the vocals a bit clearer and it gets, you know, it gets murky when, when Phil Spector is really doing his thing on this record and he doesn't do it everywhere, (laughs) you know, I mean, behind that locked door has a lot less of it. And, you know, there are certain, you know, if not for you, I mean, some of the things have escaped it in some ways, but a lot of them have that big, humongous production sound that, in a way, I think almost gets in the way of the, the beauty of the song. I never felt that. You know, I love the, the production just the way it is. Mm-hmm. There are the simpler production ones, like you mentioned, Alan, you know, Behind That Luck Door, If Not For You, I'd Have You Anytime, certain ones like that, yep. uh, Apple Scruffs. But I never felt like... For example, George's vocals were buried in any way. It's um, everything, all the instrumentation worked exactly the way that it was presented there. Um, I wouldn't change a thing there, but at the same time, I do love hearing it when it's stripped down. And if it was something like what, what Steve said, like the John and Yoko stripped down version of Double Fantasy, which was never <laughs> an overly produced album to begin with. Right. But once you once you remove the horns on certain songs or the double tracking of John's vocals so that it's just a single track, it's a different feel altogether mm-hmm. sometimes. So I like I'd like to hear more of All Things Must Pass that way. What did you think of My Sweet Lord 2000? It was nice. I liked the different version he actually changed that guitar lick somewhat yep it was okay 
Well, you, you know, it doesn't I'm, doesn't replace the original version, though. No, not at all. But I like you know, it's just a different version. To right. To. Yeah. It's nice. To, it's nice to have a, a different version. Um, but uh, it, no, yeah, it, it it doesn't replace the original. By the way, um, I got an answer about the uh, the Ringo booklet, and yes, it's there. Oh, good. So. Cool. so all right. There, there we go. Thank you to our friends at Universal for coming through so quickly on that. I bet Klaus Foreman's a little happy. I bet he, I bet he is too. <laughs> I bet he is too. Anyway. And also, we were talking about the other songs that George Harrison wrote along the way that didn't make it to All Things Was Pass. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it. When you listen to the Beware of Abco uh, bootleg, those other songs, they're good. They're not really finished. And I don't really feel like... Right. You know, they were as good as what was released on All Things Must Pass. But then at the same time, you've got other songs like like Woman, Don't You Cry For Me. OK, these so many of the songs on All Things Must Pass were songs that George wrote late 1968 through 69. Um, and some of them were 1970. You even have to go back to 1966 because The Art of Dying is supposed to have been written around that time. There is the um, the acoustic version of that song where where George says and even uh, and nothing Mr. Epstein can do will keep me here with you. So there's a reference there to Brian who was alive at the time. So that song dates all the way far back to 1966. Although I'm not sure if he finished the song by then. I can't imagine. I can't, ima- it. can't imagine him doing that with the Beatles. I can't. I cannot. But I'm just saying, some of these songs, and I, I believe that Isn't It a Pity was started in 1966. But you have a lot of these other songs, certainly from the All Things Must Pass sessions. You, the song which eventually wound up on Extra Texture, was something that was considered for Ronnie Spector. You know, I Don't Want to Do It mm-hmm. was also rehearsed during mm-hmm. All Things Must Pass. So the decision of you know, through the years, what to include on All Things Must Pass, he made really pretty much the right choices. The only complaint I'd ever make about those first, the two albums, Everything But the Apple Jam, is I never saw the need for two versions of Isn't It a Pity. Mm -hmm. And when um, the bonus track of I Live For You, which I think is a gorgeous song, was included in the remastered All Things Must Pass, that could have easily have been on the album. I think. Hmm. So that's about the only criticism as far as the material. The songs are just wonderful. Every single song there I love on All Things Must Pass. It's nice to get um, you know, a collaboration with Bob Dylan mm-hmm. with I'd Have You Anytime. What did the two of you think of that song? And to lead off All Things Must Pass. Steve? I, lo- I love that song. It's it, And, uh, you know, he's, uh, I mean, it's been done so many times. I mean, it's it's such a it's such a great song. Do you think that was a political statement in a way? I mean, not political, political, but band political. In other words, you know, hey, um, I'm writing with Dylan. I'm nobody's like second choice um, songwriter here. You know, ah, I never thought about that. Me either. No. <laughs> you know, and as the lead off, <laughs> it just seems like a message. But maybe, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm too much of a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Uh-huh. You know, we could do an entire show on the whole My Sweet Lord lawsuit. But, um, 
you know, the song, according to George, was influenced by Oh Happy Day by the Edwin Hawkins singers. Right. Not by the chiffons, he's so fine. I mean, it's a great, and, it's a great defense. I did not rip off that song. I ripped off that song. <laughs> <laughs> if but you know what's I, so I, if I can, if I can interject, um, uh, our friend uh, that Alan and I know, Joe, Joe Self, wrote a long, long um, explanation of that lawsuit on my old Abbey Road website. That it's still up there. But it's well worth reading, and I know it's been referenced many times. But uh, yeah, I mean that whole that whole situation was very strange. Now, mm-hmm. now George ends up um, owning both songs, you know, right. at the end of that lawsuit. Right. right. And, and the judge, Richard Owen, was actually an opera composer. He's published by Shermer. You know, it's not like they went in front of somebody who was tone deaf and didn't know anything about music. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it's, mm. it was just just a really interesting case all around. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Uh, at least the way that George told the story, um, Alan Klein was pushing for My Sweet Lord to become the single, the first single from the album. And then he went and bought the music publishing and sued George. Right. So right. how bizarre is that, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the court actually found it so bizarre that the penalty that uh, Klein won was that George could buy the company for him for what he paid for it. Mm-hmm. So no profit. Yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at, at uh, Joe Self's uh, explanation, it's, it's, or uh, his analysis. It's a great piece. It really, really is. But yeah, and he actually thanks you at the bottom there, Alan. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> See, Alan is everywhere. Alan is everywhere. <laughs> Alan is everywhere. Alan is everywhere. So. But uh, another ironic thing there is that Billy Preston recorded his version of My Sweet Lord, which George produced, and singing background are the Edwin Hawkins singers. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But George's recording of that was such an amazing record. It really is a fantastic recording and song. Everything about it, the introduction, that guitar riff is one of the most memorable. <laughs> yeah. You know? It, and uh, everything about it, the, and the whole wall of sound, and and that's one you know? song I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take the production off of. I mean, we were talking about that just you know a few minutes ago, but that I wouldn't touch my sweet lord, not not at all. So. Mm. And also, we should point out that a few of the songs have a, a reference to the Beatles or to a Beatle, because. Um, you know, Wawa was a reference. It was actually, it, it was a term that uh, means a headache. And George was uh, talking about the headache of being in the band and the Beatles and going to meetings and the business side of things and the arguing amongst right. the band. So, and um, I think he wrote that song after he walked out on the Beatles hmm. in January of 69. Hmm. And isn't also, it, what a pity seems to you know sort of address the situation too, even though it was started early. Yeah, and one of my absolute favorite George Harrison songs, and I might be in a minority here, but one that I absolutely love, more so now than I ever have before, is "Run of the Mill." "Run of the Mill" is amazing for the poetry uh, in that song and how the words flow and the syncopation in the song, which is very unique about it. You know, everyone has choice in the way that it's accented when mm-hmm. to or not to raise their voices. Mm-hmm. You know, and the song is supposed to be 
written about Paul and the problem they were having with their relationship at the time. No one around you will carry the blame for you. No one around you will love you today and throw it all away. You know, um, tomorrow when you rise, another day for you to realize me mm-hmm. or set me down again. Mm-hmm. You know, he was having problems with Paul and with John at that time. Right. But um, if you read I Me Mine, his book, he does say that, um, you know, the song is at least somewhat about Paul in there. And then um, just the fact that he also threw in a Bob Dylan song with If Not For You, Mm -hmm. Um, just a great version of that song. Mm -hmm. And it was really, um, apart from the fact that All Things Was Passed was such a huge album, that was one of the most played album cuts on rock radio at the time, If Not For You. Yeah. (laughs) Have we talked about, uh, I mean, speaking of uh, Paul and some of the battles George had with Paul um, and, and one particular one, uh, specifically, have we have we talked about Hey Jude and um, isn't it a pity? No, no, we haven't. You know, if you listen, and I think it's clearer actually in version two of Isn't It a Pity, which may answer your question about why it's there. It may be another statement. You listen to the end of Isn't It a Pity, and you absolutely can hear na 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 na. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very clear. I mean, it, it's because the production is so huge, you you can miss it. But once someone brings your attention to it, you can't not hear it anymore. And a, and a friend of mine mentioned it um, years and years ago, and um, it's it's absolutely there. And I kind of wonder, given the song, what he's talking about in the song. You know, we cause each other pain. And Hey Jude was, you know, where he was asked to sit it out, you know, and then it becomes part of the fight in Let It Be. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll play whatever you want or I won't play at all like in Hey Jude, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it obviously was on his mind several months later still. And then here it is, 1970, and he's got that ending chorus from Hey Jude going through Isn't It a Pity? A can't be an accident, you know. Mm. Well, you know, kind of like Hey Jude, version one of Isn't It a Pity was pretty much the same length. It was like over seven minutes. Yeah. And it had that coda repeated at the end, just like Hey Jude did. So, um, yeah, interesting you bring that up. So many other great songs in there. Beware of Darkness. What an amazing song that is. And I got to tell you that in this day and age, certainly on my radio show on Every Little Thing when I do the live broadcast, I get a lot of requests considering the political climate that we're in to hear Give Me Some Truth all the time. Mm -hmm. But along the same line, you can also put Beware of Darkness in there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, Beware of Greedy Leaders and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just so timeless and ahead of its time, actually, when he was uh, writing those words, you know, Waiting on You All got a lot of airplay on rock radio at the time. Could have been a single, I always felt. I always wondered if the Pope actually owned 51% of General Motors. It's not very likely, <laughs> is it? <laughs> you know, when that album came out and they had the lyrics there printed, they didn't have those lyrics. While the Pope have? owned 51 they had nothing there. They didn't uh, yeah. have anything about That's it. Right. And I couldn't make out exactly what George was saying. So that kind of annoyed me. But later on, we all found out. But, <laughs> but Awaiting on You All is such a terrific, catchy song. There's something to be said, and you could say this, obviously, about the Beatles. 
that when you're you're putting out music that is innovative for its time and doing a lot of groundbreaking work, and at the same time, it's commercially accessible. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to do those two things at the same time, you know. And that's what all things must pass was because you take so many of the commercial songs on there, waiting on you all. My sweet Lord, what is life? What a great song. <laughs> what a great guitar riff to open up a song with. Yeah. Um, you know, everything about what is life and the brass and everything coming at you. You know, at the same time, you've got a lot of great messages that you're saying in the song, in these songs, and it's very commercial at the same time. Yeah. You could say that about the title track to All Things Must Pass. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's it's like great poetry, reading the lyrics of a song like that. I love Hear Me, Lord. That's another song. They're like, kind of like a mantra, kind of like My Sweet Lord was. Mm-hmm. And um, just love everything about it. I really do. Everything from, from start to finish, except, like I said, you didn't really have to have version two of Isn't It a Pity. And it, it, do I, either of you listen to Apple Jam all that much? I listened to it. I listened to it earlier this afternoon, actually. It was kind of funny. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, George's humor. Uh, um, in full bloom there, um, especially with the the speeding up of the vocals. Um, but um, you mean on, for it's Johnny's birthday, right? Yeah. Right. Which was done for John's birthday, John Lennon's right. birthday. Right. Yeah. I don't listen to it all that much, but I did listen to it today, and and every now and then. I mean, you know, with jams, you know, there's there's really good playing going on here, um, but it kind of is a warm up jam in a way you know you know that they're doing it just to get loose before the session or in a break mm-hmm. or or whatever and you know as, as as great as some of the playing is um the thing about jams is that quite often they're much more interesting if you're holding a guitar and being in the jam than if you're just sitting there listening to the jam Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's probably why it doesn't get played all that much. Did that ever? Did that disc ever get airplay? Uh, maybe when it first came out. Yeah. And when you've got you know stellar musicians, yeah. I was going to bring up Apple Jam because it really is what led to Derek and the Dominoes. Mm-hmm. You know, all the musicians that were on those tracks are the lineup that made up Derek and the Dominoes. True. So. Um, Maybe we should give George some credit for that. <laughs> yeah. But it all kind of started with um, Eric Clapton persuading George to join Delaney and Bonnie on uh, hmm. the UK tour and, and European tour at the end of 1969. So we got to know a lot of these musicians, and they ended up on his album. And it became pretty much what George did throughout his entire solo career. He always had great musicians. He made great friends who happened to be you know, amongst the best musicians that are out there. And uh, apart from Eric Clapton and, uh, well, Ringo's on the album. We also know Alan White, who became, you know, famous for being in Yes, also playing on Instant Karma. Uh, you know, the drummer in Yes, uh, people like Billy Preston was on the album. You know, Klaus Foreman, Gary Wright, the members of Badfinger played on it. You had, uh, you know, some of the best musicians out there. On, yeah. on uh, All Things Must Pass. And that carried over into the rest of his solo career. Some of the very same musicians played on later albums from George. 
Yeah. I have a vague memory, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I seem to recall that when the record came out, it was priced as a double album, and the jam album was basically free. I think, I think right. you're right about yeah. that. Thank yeah. you, are. So, I mean, you can't complain about getting it. And, and plus, if it was bootlegged, we would be going crazy over it. Mm. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that was, it, it was interesting that not only All Things Must Pass came in that little box, but so did Bangladesh. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, he, he was given he was given fans everything uh, at that point. So yeah, and not only do you have George with this outpouring of great material as a songwriter, but the mere fact that he's made these friends and they're playing with him is a statement of how highly they think of him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you know he's writing with Bob Dylan. Yeah, I kind of wish that he did more of it pre Wilburys. You know. So many years in between, I kind of wish the two of them had written more together. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, anything else you guys want to say about All Things Must Pass? Do you look at it as being possibly the best of all the solo Beatle albums? It's really tough because there's so many great ones. But I think, um, and I've said it many times, that Living in the Material World is my favorite album, not only from George, but from anybody, for other reasons. But I will never, ever, for one fraction of a second, ever um, discount uh, All Things Must Pass. It's, to me, it's one of the greatest albums ever, too. Just because of the material. And, you know, maybe sometimes do we make too big a deal of this, this outpouring of George Harrison from, from all the years of kind of being restrained in the Beatles, which actually isn't that fair to say when you think about it. Towards the end of the Beatles... George was really flourishing. He wasn't that prolific in the early years. He always put out great songs, but he never put out this much great material all at once. So to hear it, you know, come pouring out in a couple of albums like this was shocking, I'm sure, to a lot of fans. Mm -hmm. Do you remember your first reaction to hearing this album, either of you? No, I mean it's been, t- it's, been it's been a long time. Uh, it'd be hard for me to remember. It's been a long time, but I, I remember it. I mean, we would have heard it on like you know WNEWFM. That that was you know the station that was playing you know like a side at a time of things. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, wow, this is really great stuff. Maybe this breakup can work out after all. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. because you know when they broke up it was like that was it was so tragic you know and um they were each putting out records and then suddenly here comes george with two full albums plus a jam album you know it's it was really it was really extraordinary and um you know like you said ken i mean there there isn't a track on this album that i skip you know, it's mm-hmm. they're, they're all good, and um, it's you know it really just was outstanding at the time, and that's why it was so exciting. Like a year later, when you know he was going to do Bangladesh right in New York, and I could right. go, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, and he, and you know a lot of the stuff on that concert was from this album, obviously. So I, I right. think quite a few. when you're talking when you're talking about the best Beatles solo albums, those first few, you know, between Ringo and McCartney and this one and uh, the uh, Plastic Ono. I mean, those are, those are just amazing. They're, you can't, it's hard to 
beat any of those. Whenever you talk about the best solo albums, you have to talk about those four. You have to put those four in the group. You know, of oh, the ones you're talking yeah. about. They're definitely amongst the best. Oh, you know, I, I didn't say they were the only the, only oh, yeah. the best. I'm saying those four were all amazing achievements. And, uh, you know, they started off their solo careers with four superb albums. Um, you know, I mean, they all went in different directions. And some had, you know, the, the quality kind of went up and down and up and down, depending on who, you know, who we're talking about. But those four were fantastic. And this was actually kind of a, a big surprise because I don't think anybody really expected what they got when they, when we got All Things Must Pass. Mm. You know, we were all used to, I mean, we kind of, we had seen George's development as a songwriter. You know, something was, was an astounding song. On There, uh, there are on, so many of them, really. Right, but, the, but I'm yeah. talking about, you know, in the, in the tracing the course of his development from don't bother me to something, you know, from the, from with the Beatles to Abbey road, you know, his development was fantastic, but I don't know that anybody expected what we got with, with uh, all things must pass, especially after, you know, electronic sounds, you know, I don't know that anybody was expecting that, but, uh, Hey, I mean, it was good stuff on Wonderwall. Yes, there was, oh, but, not, but 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 Wonderwall was not uh, all not things. Songs. Yeah, right. Um, right, yeah, and you know, and we hadn't at that time heard all of those outtakes from Let It Be, so we didn't know how many songs George had sort of routine during those sessions. You know, um, mm-hmm. so so the 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 sheer number of great songs here, you know, did come as a surprise, I think, because we were used to like two or three songs on a record. I mean, Revolver was the high watermark there in terms of, you know, numbers of songs he got on. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was usually just two, you know, sometimes one. And here's, like, triple album. Right. Right. Yeah. In many ways, to me, All Things Must Pass was a real blessing because, um, you know, here's George with so many great songs, and we don't know... If the Beatles had continued, if they would have had both the group and the solo albums coming out at the same time, nobody will ever know that. It was really something that was entirely new. Bands didn't do it back then. You know, if you left a band, that was it. You know, you were on with your solo career. And that's the way it was for most artists. And even, you know, with John Lennon, those early albums with Yoko were not pop albums, you know, unless you want to consider Live Peace in Toronto. That would be, you know... But the, the avant-garde stuff with Yoko, it's not the same thing as putting out a pop rock album. And um, so, but the thing is, with All Things Must Pass, here is George coming out with all this great material that we probably would never have gotten, or very little of it, had the Beatles continued and not put out solo music. So, you know, one of the, one of the advantages of the Beatles breaking up was that we got so much more music out of George Harrison and for that matter, Ringo, who only got one song per album, than we ever would have had had they stayed together. So All Things Must Pass is certainly proof of that, more so because it's a double album plus the Apple Jam. But um, I'm just so grateful that it came out. You know, it's, it still is, to this day, a stunning piece of work. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm. 
So that uh, pretty much wraps things up for this show. Let's give out our contact information. And uh, why don't we start with you, Steve? You can get me at BeatlesExaminer at gmail.com. You can write to me. Um, I have my own personal Facebook page where I talk about Beatles and other subjects. But if you want to talk to us, Beatles, join my Beatles News and Information group that uh, is really starting to pick up steam. And also, to get a hold of the show, you can write Things We Said Today radio show at gmail.com. Um, we're on Twitter at Things We Said Fab. The uh, Things We Said Today Beatles Radio Fans Facebook group is also growing by leaps and bounds. And we talk about the show there. Um, so you can chime in and comment about the about the latest shows or the older shows or whatever you want. And that's about it. All right, Alan, how about you? Okay, the easiest way to get to me is through Facebook at Alan Cozen or Alan Cozen Remix um, or at the group email that Steve just gave. And um, people also put comments on um, YouTube and Podbean, and we read them. Um, we don't always answer. We may answer on the show sometimes. Um, but we see them, and we appreciate them, and um, keep it up. Okay. And as for myself, Ken Michaels, uh, my email address is everylittlething at att.net. You can also reach me on my Facebook page at Ken Michaels. My website is KenMichaelsRadio.com. Don't forget that every single week there's Beatles trivia there where you can win one of nine great prizes. It goes on every single week, whether it's books, CDs, or DVDs, all on the Beatles or the solo Beatles, or friends of the Beatles, for that matter. We've got the Weaklings as a prize on uh, my page, a new Roy Orbison CD with him being backed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And um, lots of interviews on the website, too. That's at KenMichaelsRadio.com. All right, this has been a fantastic show. I want to thank all of you for listening. And for Alan Cozen and Steve Marinucci, this is Ken Michaels. Thank all of you again for tuning in. And we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.